Come back, Jesus. Good morning, church. It's good to worship Jesus with you all this morning. My name's Justin, one of the elders of Peninsula Grace. If I haven't met you yet, excited to jump into God's Word together this morning. Uh, wanted to start with a story. Once upon a time, uh, my brother Jeremy and I were this age, and uh, we got lost in the woods. Hard to imagine Lewis and Clark there getting lost anywhere, right? Uh, so we actually lived in the fourplex just down the street here at the end of Wazoo Avenue. So we found ourselves in the vast, expansive Alaskan wilderness out here in, in the woods. And it took, it took us a while to realize that we were lost, right? We're just playing fort or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, we're like, we actually have no idea where we are, right? And now we're lost in the middle of nowhere, right? And we start getting terrified. Guys, we saw things out in those woods that we will never unsee, right? <laughs> I saw a moose, right? Actually, I, I heard a moose. I'm pretty sure it was there. I'm pretty sure it was going to kill us, right? Uh, we, again, these idiots, we were lost and afraid. We finally, after hours of pacing around the woods, maybe it was actually just minutes, it felt like days, you guys. That's the important thing. We heard the most beautiful sound in the world, K-Beach traffic. <laughs> we were saved, right? We moved toward those car noises and we found ourselves out of the terrifying wood and found our feet on the hard and glorious path of Wazoo Avenue leading us safely home. Now, had we not found that path, we probably would have wandered around in those woods until we died, right? Even though, had my mom been cooking something, we were close enough to probably smell it. But we were out and lost on our own. We had no hope of getting on the safe and good path and finding our way home. Certain death for thing one and thing two up here. Just like my brother and I, we all find ourselves at times straying off of God's safe and good path. We all find ourselves in need at times of being found out of the woods and back onto God's good and safe path for us. I know, I don't know about you, my, my heart is prone to wander. It's prone to drift, thinking, I know better, but before you know it, I find myself lost and alone in the woods, terrified. But here's the good news we want to proclaim this morning. Jesus says, when we find ourselves straying by ourselves, lost in the woods, here's our Savior's heart for us. He says in Matthew 18, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them sheep wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, what does he do? He re will rejoice over it more than uh, over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, Jesus says, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. This is God's heart for us when we stray. He wants to pick us up, put us on his shoulders, and bring us back to God's good and safe path. This is our last week in a four-week series on what does it mean to truly belong to the body of Christ. 
And, and this week, I'm going to argue from God's word that part of belonging is this idea of correcting one another or, or church discipline at times it's, it's been called. Now, a topic like that, you're not like, woo, let's buckle up and go, right? It's hard. It can be scary. Some of us have had bad experiences with this in the past or have heard of the and cards on the table. Like I've been a part of some of these things and not always done everything right on my own right. So maybe all have ears to hear this morning. And this is why I think it's so critical for us to start with God's heart in this. Hebrews 12, he shows us his heart. He says, have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up. Don't despair when he corrects you. Why? For the Lord disciplines those he can't stand. Those he can barely tolerate. His, no, what does he say? Those he loves. And he punishes each one. At, he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by their father? He says the relationship here is a father to their son. So when we're being corrected, when we're being disciplined, we don't have to fear that he's going to kick us out of the family. We have to remember that our Father longs for us to flourish and to be the people he's created us to be. And so part of this is correction, right? And what's he implying here? If disciplining is loving, then it would actually be unloving of our Father to not discipline, to not correct us. And we know this. Like when you see that parent who lets their kid do whatever they want and there's never any correction in their lives, you're not going, wow, they really love them, right? That's not what's going on. I know as one of God's children, there are a lot of things in me that still need to change, areas that I still need to grow in. And here's the beautiful truth. You've probably heard it before said that God loves us enough to accept us exactly where we are. The gospel is not clean up and then he'll accept us. We're accepted in Jesus. And yet God also loves us enough to not leave us where we are, but to grow us. Now you might say, well, that's all well and good. That's God's job, right? God will correct me. Who do you think you are? Anybody else? You're not my keeper, brother, right? You mind your own beeswax. Get my name out your mouth, right? Don't talk to me, right? I believe that God teaches us in his word that a church that loves each other is also a part of this correction process, that God in his word tells us, man, that each of us need to grow and heal. And what do we just sing? The bride is waiting for her groom and he is purifying her, washing her with the water of his word. We talked about that last week. But part of that washing, part of that cleansing is the correction, is the spot removal of the things in us that need to change. And God has called us as his body to actually be a part of that process. We, the church, are his chosen vehicle to take the good news of Jesus into a world, to save the lost, and then to help grow the found. So what does this look like? Well, let's, let's look at God's word for that. Number one, if you're following along in your notes, uh, steps for correction. Fill in the blanks uh, in the bulletin if you didn't grab one that's out in the foyer. Steps for course corrections. What do we do when there's a brother or a sister who is not walking on God's good and safe path, when they find themselves lost in the woods? Well, I love, I mean, context is so important in the Bible. Matthew 18, he just gets done telling the story we just read, how God's heart is to abandon, he, he would actually go chase down the one and, and leave the 99. That's God's heart for us. The heart 
to bring the sheep back. And now, in Matthew 18, 15, 8 through 18, he talks about how do we restore a lost sheep? How do we bring them back into uh, the, the fold? And this reads a bit like a, a choose-your-own-adventure. Anybody read those growing up, choose-your-own-adventure books? Loved those. Owned the Dumbo one. Fantastic, right? If you want to ride the elephant, turn to page 63. If you're a little scared, understandably, about riding a flying elephant, just turn to page 14 or whatever it was. So in this, this, this chapter, Matthew 18, we're going to see a choose-your-own-adventure for the one that's being corrected. We have some options. It says, if, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, if he listens to you when you correct him, please turn to verse 15. You have won your brother. But he says, if he won't listen, please turn to verses 16 and 17. We're going to look at these two different options depending on how the corrected responds. And Luke 17, actually, it's a parallel passage. Jesus is talking about the, the same idea. He says it this way and even a little bit more succinctly. Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So two conditional clauses. If he sins, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. So first looking at if he sins. Now notice here it says if he sins, not if he annoys you, right? Not if they just disagree with you. This is not, I think that shirt is hideous, and so I'm going to rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Change thine outfit, right? That's not what's on the table here. This is something that we would say is in the sin category. That's something that violates a principle of God's word. Now, sometimes that's super straightforward. They've committed adultery. They've stolen something, right? Like, it's, it's pretty clear. But a lot of times, like, I don't know about you, but my experience has been those lines can be fuzzy. Is this sin? Man, I'm seeing the way they're treating that person. That seems harsh, that seems a little too self-centered. That, that seems like maybe it's gossip, but I don't, it, it can be fuzzy, right? So we want to tread lightly, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But what do we do? If we do believe they are sinning, what do we do? It says to rebuke them. Now, rebuke, that's a fun word, right? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Uh, what does rebuke mean? It doesn't mean to scream at them. It doesn't mean to cut them down to size and belittle them. It doesn't mean to thump them over the head with the largest KJV, like, old person print that you can find over the head, right? That's not what it's saying here. The word rebuke actually means to charge one with wrong. So when we're in the courts and, and someone is being charged with a crime, with, with, with a trespass, right? So we're, we're saying, brother, sister, we believe this is, what you're doing here is, is sinful. I like the way that Matthew 18 says it. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Or this phrase can also mean to correct or to bring to light. So we're coming up to somebody, and we're going to talk about how do we do that well. We'll talk about that just in a minute. But I, but I believe, Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. The only way we're going to do, approach something this eggshelly is if we approach it with the right end in mind. What's the goal? Why would we, when we approach somebody to rebuke a sin, what's the goal here? Well, we know it's not to, it should not be to win an argument. Because we can be right and be oh so wrong if we approach somebody in the wrong way. It's also, it's also not to point out their fault just so that we can feel better about ourselves. A lot of times we, we like to point out someone else, how jacked up they are, so we don't seem quite as jacked up, right? The biblical goal is in this course correction is, is restoration. This is the picture that Jesus shows us in Matthew 18 of the, of the lamb that was off by itself in the woods to be rescued and brought back to safety into the fold with the other sheep and with the shepherd. It's restoration of relationship. So our daughter just turned three months old uh, on the 21st, and I will use any excuse possible to get her up on the screen, right? So we, uh, she, had, she was congested last week, and so uh, we had to... Uh, 
do this little torture thing. Uh, I called it waterboarding, uh, where I would hold her head down and we would pump the saline drops on the one side. Jill would do this. I, I, she's much stronger than I am. And so I would hold her head and she would, she would flush her out on the one side and then use that little torture sucky device that comes straight from the pit of hell, right? Sucking the snot out of the other side. Lucy is screaming as though we're actually chopping her nose clean off, right? And, and we go, man, no, no, we hated doing that, right? Like we hated it. This was not some sick thrill for us to torture our daughter, right? We're both on the verge of tears. No, you cried. No, you cried. I didn't cry, right? It's not fun. But listen, we had to get the crud out of her nose so that she could breathe. And even though she hated it in the moment, she slept like a baby. Okay, that was... Um, <laughs> which actually I've learned now is a terrible expression. Um, <laughs> Second Timothy 2, Peter, uh, Paul is, is talking to his apprentice, Timothy, and he talks about how to approach somebody with some crud that needs to go. He says, be patient with difficult people. Be patient with difficult people. Uh, luckily, I'm never one of those. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change. Ultimately, it's God that's going to change a heart, right? Not us. It's not our job. Change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth, the good and safe path. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. So we have to approach somebody, not as an enemy, not as someone to, to, to beat down and show how much better we are than them, but to see someone who is ensnared in a trap and that we want to help free them. We shouldn't get some sick thrill out of pointing out somebody else's faults. It should, it should tear us up. It should not be fun for the correct Ted or the correct T, right? But we know, man, brother, sister, there is some crud that I think I'm seeing in your life that's got to go that will actually be better for you so that you can breathe and flourish as God has intended you. We are looking to restore them, free them, give them the breath of life. So with that end in mind, let's consider how to approach. So let's start with if we're the one being corrected, for the one being corrected. So I always, if, if you've noticed patterns, I always introduce myself as Justin, one of the elders or pastors here at Peninsula Grace. And I say that very intentionally because we are a team of elders here. Here's your current elder team at Peninsula Grace. I'm not some lone ranger pastor. We believe biblically that we are a team, that we have equal responsibility uh, to under-shepherd, under Jesus here at the church. So part of that is to submit myself under the other elders for um, encouragement, but then also correction. One of the ways that we practically walk in that is every year we have this evaluation from the elders to me. So recently, the rest of the team, they kind of talked through my strengths. This is just like a super long list, so they couldn't get to the bottom. And, and then a few areas of improvement, right? Uh, so our elder chairman then sat down with me. Uh, elder chair is Drew. He's the one that looks like he uh, works at Solid Rock um, Bible Camp. <laughs> now, I loved when we sat down. I loved when Drew started with my strengths. And I'm like, go on, right? Slow down, slow down. Don't miss anything, right? But then when he got to my areas of improvement, like, yeah, we, let's wrap this up, buddy. Let's, let's move forward here. I, I don't, like, I know, I know in theory that I'm not a perfect pastor, right? <laughs> Theoretically. I've got some flaws, but to actually have to like move past theory into some specifics, that was not fun, right? I found myself, I don't know how, if, how you receive these kind of things, but I was defaulting to being so defensive, self-justifying. I had a big case of the yeah buts. Yeah, but, yeah, but, well, yeah, but, right? I was arguing each point in, in my head. Outwardly, I was like, yes, Drew, I received this. And inside, I'm like, ah, right? You don't know me. Uh, 
and then I want to shoot down the other elders. Well, he's an idiot altogether, right? In the name of Jesus, of course, right? Uh, Hebrews 12 says this, No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. Hallelujah. But afterward, afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Say, listen, like the elders want the best for me, and so there's some areas that I can grow in, right? And so to say, even though this isn't fun hearing some of these things, like this is actually better for me. This is going to help me flourish as a Jesus follower, as a pastor. Proverbs has a lot to say about receiving correction. Uh, Proverbs 10, people who accept discipline are on the pathway to life. This is the better path. This is God's heart for us. But those who ignore correction, where do they find themselves? Lost in the woods, astray, veering on a dangerous collision course, disaster. Now, I doubt any of us here, like, loves correction. Like, are you, like, Friday night, you circle up with some close buddies and be like, let's evaluate each other, right? Like, that sounds fun. You guys are crazy if that's the case. Two things for us to consider here. Number one, have a humble heart that welcomes correction. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a humble heart that welcomes correction. Proverbs 12 says, to learn, that what is, what is, if you're going to learn, what does that imply? I don't know everything. I need to learn. To learn, you must love discipline, correction, being taught. It is stupid to hate correction. Tell us how you really feel, Solomon, right? Love the new living. So he says, to learn, to be humble. And this is to see myself as I really am. And again, it's first and foremost to see myself as secure as a child of God. But then it's also to see I'm a recovering sinner that still has a long way to go down the path of health and life. Now, sometimes you might say, well, what about the person who approaches me and they're wrong? Like they're they're there pointing out a sin and they're dead wrong. Or maybe they're even right, but they are treating me like a jerk. I love Sam Alberry said this in a way that was helpful. Even if somebody is coming to you in the wrong way or is wrong about what they're coming to, remember that I am far worse than that person ever knows. So when they come, maybe they're wrong about this, but there are 12,000 other things that I've got a long way to go in. So I can slow my role and be a humble learner. And in that moment, I would encourage us to say, God, what are you teaching me here? Because in every interaction, there is something God wants to teach us and grow us in. So look for that in that moment. Have a humble heart that welcomes correction. But then even more so, I would say number two, ask the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to correct our steps. Ask the Spirit to correct us. This is not just that we are willing to receive correction when it comes, but it's actually proactively asking the Holy Spirit and other people around us to point those things out. If I'm not a person that's willing to ask for input from other people, that's an eyebrow raiser. And so ask yourself this morning, am I approachable? And not only am I approachable, am I actually proactively asking other people to approach me? Maybe there's some specific areas in your life that you say, my friend, would you just on a regular basis just come to me and and in love say, how are you doing in that? How's it going in that that area? And this, we got to start with the small stuff because it always starts small and then grows. This is why we need to be daily, daily bringing ourselves honestly before the Lord in, in a posture of confession and honesty and repentance. One of the things I do every morning is I'll think about the day's event from the, the day's events from the day before. This helps me kind of bring it down to bite size. And then as I think about those events, what did I do? What did my day look like? I'll pray the end of Psalm 139, which says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So I say, God, I know your heart for me is to move toward life, connection with you and others. So if there's something, Spirit, that is offending you, if there's something that I'm not seeing that it maybe reveals my anxious thoughts, 
Like, would you just point that out to me and lovingly correct me in that, doing that on a daily basis to keep those things from growing out of control? And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we ask the question, am I just a hypothetical sinner or am I an actual sinner? Because if I'm just a hypothetical sinner, then all I need is a hypothetical savior, right? It's like, I'm a, sa- I'm a sinner in theory, but if I'm not actually able to look at specific sins in my life that I actually need to grow in specifically, then Jesus is just sort of flannel graph guy. I don't actually need a living, breathing savior who rescues me from sin today. So do I actually sin or do I just theoretically sin? I've seen this in my own life areas. I mean, I lack, I'm not naturally a a generous person, especially financially. I've seen recently with our little three-month-old, I I had some rage that was under the surface, and now it's bubbling up, right, when she starts fussing, and I don't know why, right? Oh, okay, Lord, let's work on that issue, right? What are some specific areas that we need to grow in that we can be specifically loved and saved from? So think about that, welcoming and proactively asking humbly for correction as the one being corrected. But then what about the one who is doing the correcting? How do we think that through? Galatians 6.1 has two principles that I think are really helpful for us in doing this. Number one, do it gently. So do it gently. It says in verse 1 of Galatians 6, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, again, they're ensnared, need to be freed, You who are godly, that means someone who walks with God, who does things God's way, should gently, like God would with us, help that person back onto the right path. And I think this is the important uh, uh, adverb there, is to do it gently. Now, it is true, to be clear is to be kind, right? And sometimes, if you're like me, a people pleaser, sometimes I actually need to have the chutzpah to tell somebody what, what I actually am seeing. But then also, to be clear, is to be kind, we must do it kindly, right? You don't come up to somebody and go, you stink, heathen, turn or burn, right? That's not, that's weird and demonic and not helpful, right? And we would come to them and say, man, like, one way to injure people is to rebuke them severely. We can do the right thing the wrong way, and it's still wrong. And I think this can be both sides of the aisle. Sometimes we can be way too aggressive, but then we can also sometimes be way too passive-aggressive and manipulative. We need to watch out for both of those pitfalls. I love a key word here in both Matthew 18 and Luke 17 is if your brother if your brother sins against you. Now, this Greek here is brother or sister. This is a sibling in Jesus. And we need to remember who it is that we're approaching. This is not the enemy. This is not an inferior to me. This is family business. This is a sibling in Christ and a fellow human being to dignify. Do they believe, do they receive this done in love? And maybe one way to kind of check that is how would I feel if I was being approached in the way that I'm approaching them? Is it gentle? And one practical way I would point toward this is don't do it publicly. And please, please don't confront somebody over Facebook, online, in front of everybody else. Matthew 18 says, if you see somebody in sin, go between you and him alone. This is not a spectator sport. Do it, in fact, I would even say do it in person, face to face. They can see my facial expressions, my body language, hear my tone. Isn't it so much easier to say something we don't want to say over text? Because then it's like, I didn't see, I don't see their reaction, right? Or send an email, bam, and then I don't have to deal with it. That's easier. It is not better. In fact, the general principle is if it's positive, it can be done in writing. But if it's negative, it needs to be done face-to-face. It needs to be done in person. And again, I will admit, I have done this wrong in the past. I am learning by trial and 
error. Drew modeled this really well for me when we sat down in our meeting. First of all, he bought me coffee, which was a brilliant move on his part. And then he sat down eye to eye and said, brother, our intention here is not to condemn you. And we don't. Like, we love you. We accept you. There are some things you're doing awesome in that we think you can just be more awesomer in. And then maybe some areas to improve in. That we, and, and just be able to share the heart of what in relationship, eyeball to eyeball, went a huge way. It was a super encouraging time. So do it gently. Number two, do it humbly. Do it humbly. Again, 6-1 says, and humbly help that person back on to the right path. And I love this. Be careful. This is part of humility. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. When I come to that person, i got to realize I am no better than them. And I could just as easily fall into what they are falling into. And maybe it's not the exact same sin, but one that's a lot like it, right? I, we have an even playing field as sinners in need of a savior. And again, Drew was so good with this. He goes, here are some areas. And we, by the way, we can all grow in this as elders. And, and he said, we're doing this as a team. We're not saying you need to fix this. It's like, what, how can we be better as a team? Humility involves a two-way communication. This is a dialogue that needs to happen, not a lecture. You don't sit someone down and ream them out in a monologue. It's going both ways to speak, but also to listen. Maybe sit them down and say, hey, I know this is awkward. Like, I don't want to be having this conversation any more than you do. Here's some things I've seen, and here's where I think it contradicts Scripture. But one of the keys is come asking questions to clarify. So I, I might, I, and legitimately believe this, I might be wrong here. I see this. I might think it's wrong, but maybe I'm off, right? Ask questions and clarify a two-way street. Because listen, the problem, we cannot come and see them as the issue. That it's, I'm, i got to fix you. It's the sin out here that we want together to tackle and say, how do we help see victory in this area? So we got to welcome that correction, and we need to come gently and humbly. But then what about back to our choose-your-own-adventure? How do we respond to the person who is correctable? Let's start with that one first. Uh, so again, the choose-your-own-adventure would say, uh, Luke said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. But then what did he say? If he repents... Forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, there's some baggage with both of these words, so let's talk about what that means. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Uh, this word simply means it's a change of mind. This is course correction that we hear. Man, I was off on a dangerous route. I was, to put it this way visually, I was heading off a cliff, and I need to change. I need to slam the brakes on and make a U-turn. as to say, God, you're right in this area. I was wrong, and I need to change. And says, if that person is willing to say, yep, I'm wrong and I need to course correct, what's our response? Is to forgive. It's to forgive them. And again, there can be a lot of confusion with this word. This word means to let go of, to send away. It's, it's called the Elsa response, right, if you will. It's to say, I will, 1 Corinthians 13 says it this way, love keeps no record of wrongs. So when they repent and say, I was wrong, I need to course correct, you don't hold that against them. And weeks and years later go, remember that one time when you were terrible, right? We don't rub their nose in it, right? We forgive them. We let it go. We made a charge. They course corrected. And now we drop the charges. We let go of the bitterness and resentment that maybe we were hanging on toward the one who had wronged us in particular. I love the way Matthew 18, Jesus says, if he listens to you, if they have ears to hear what you've said, you have what? You have not beat your opponent. You have won your brother. 
You don't victory dance on, on, on them being wrong. You say, man, I'm so glad you're back on God's good and better path for you with us. Again, the goal is restoration. So something I need to work on uh, forgiving is the lie from Red Robin. They call these bottomless fries, okay? You get five French fries in a, in a dish. And 40 minutes later, when your waiter gets around and going, oh, hey, do you want five more fries, right? Enjoy your bottomless fries. And the Lord is working on my heart to forgive them. Uh, do not be bitter toward this lie, this farce. Uh, okay, I'm going to move on. So we don't, maybe that's not actually bottomless fries, but we do what we need to practice, guys, is bottomless forgiveness, true bottomless forgiveness. I love each of these passages. Look at how Jesus concludes. Matthew, Luke 17, 4. If he sins against you seven times in the day, okay? My parents are twitching out right now. And turns to you seven times saying, I repent. What's Jesus' teaching here? You must forgive them. Forgive them each time they come back to you. Or Matthew 18, the very next conversation is with Peter. Look at the story. Then Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Like, Peter's feeling pretty good. Seven times, Lord, the perfect number. I mean, come on. And Jesus says, nope, actually, I'll raise you 483 times. I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And Jesus' point here is not, well, 491 times to forgive is too many. His point is it's bottomless, that every time someone comes in true repentance that we forgive just like our Father does to us in Christ. It's interesting here in both passages on discipline and correction and rebuke, it's immediately followed by this idea of bottomless forgiveness. Now, a word here, and I think this is important, some of us maybe have found ourselves in abusive situations. We found ourselves in hard spots where somebody has done us wrong, keeps saying, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, but they continue in that way. Is this passage just preaching that I just kind of continue to say it's all good, I just keep forgiving you? Well, I want to I tell you this morning, I believe biblically there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Forgiveness is between me and God. If somebody has wronged me, it's between me and the Lord to forgive them. And this will only happen by his grace. To be willing to let go of the resentment, let go of the anger and bitterness toward them. I can do that one way regardless of how they respond. But to reconcile takes both people walking toward one another. So you can, if someone is, is wronging you, abusing you, you can say, I'm going to, over time, the Lord, by his grace, is going to teach me how to let go of that forgiveness, to have an open posture, ready to receive them, but still make wise boundaries that say, until we both turn toward each other, until there is repentance, if he repents, receive him, right? So to, to come back in a healthy relationship requires both parties moving back toward one another. I would love to talk with you more about that if you're in a, a space like that. This is how we respond to the correctable. If they repent, truly we forgive. But what about the uncorrectable? What about those who will not repent? Again, in our choose your own adventure, um, what, what's the pathway here? Matthew 18, 16, and 17. There's four steps. Number one is to go to them alone. That's where we started, right? Just between you and them. So it's just one-on-one. -on -one. I'm not going to shame them publicly. That's not the idea. One-on-one. -on -one. But then number two is to go to them with others. Continue the, the, the teaching. But if he won't listen, if they don't receive the correction, take one or two others with you. Why? So that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact 
may be established. Do you hear what Jesus is teaching here? He says, bring a couple of other people with you. Now, you're not bringing other people with you to like be spectators of this brawl where they're like, yeah, get him. I got a 50 spot on Johnny, right? And they're just kind of, this is not a spectator sport. We're establishing witnesses of the situation to, for other people, other points of view to be able to say, yep, this is sin. And that person is in the wrong. Or maybe, what did we say earlier? I might be in the wrong. And now to bring some other witnesses in is to say, you know what, Justin, I think you're the one that's actually off here. We invite witnesses into that process. But what happens if there's still um, a hard heart? Number three, it's to tell the church. Matthew 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. Now, this is, again, not to shame publicly. This is a family meeting and family business. We would say practically this would be going to the elders and saying, what do we take next steps? And if we talk about it as a family, it would not be up here on Sunday morning. This would be a family meeting of members of Peninsula Grace. Now, in our church's history, we've only walked this road a couple of times, and honestly, what usually happens is somebody bails after step two, because when they see that there are several people in agreement on this, they go, I'm just going to go somewhere else that people will get out of my business. And sadly, it is usually not ended in restoration, but in leaving. What's the final step? Step four, tell, treat them as non-family, spiritually as non-family. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, if the whole church has said, brother, sister, like you're off the path, come back. And they still won't listen. It says, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So Jesus is talking to the Jewish people. The Gentiles are non-Jewish family, right? So what, what's he saying? They're non-family. Now for the church, that's someone who's not in the body of Christ. Treat them as a non-follower of Jesus, which for the record, how do we treat someone who's not following Jesus? We don't treat them like a jerk, right? We invite them into the family through repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, maybe again, you're, you're hearing this and you're kind of freaking out inside going, man, there are some sins that I have been struggling with for years. Is Justin about to rebuke me and kick me out of the church? Yes, watch your back. No, I'm just kidding. Bad time to joke. So there's a difference between struggling with a sin. Like each of us guys will have lifelong struggles with particular sin areas. What he is addressing here is the hard heart that is blatantly resisting any kind of correction with a fist in the face going, I don't care if you're saying it's wrong. I don't care if I'm convinced by scripture that it's wrong. I'm going to continue to shun you and do me. There's a very different uh, approach of blatant persistent in sin and someone who is genuinely, honestly trying to grow and heal and struggling with an area. Do you, do you see the difference? Why do we do this? Why, why don't we just leave well enough alone and let that person kind of do their own thing? Why are we called to this hard work of correction? Let's loop back around to what Jesus said coming into this passage, that it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. If we love someone, we will love them enough to do the hard thing. It's much easier to wash our hands and walk away. But if I see someone I love hurtling toward a cliff, I don't go, well, I don't want to offend them. I'm going to tackle them and say, don't do it. Like, don't. That is that way. And what does the Bible teach us? Unrepentant sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's exactly the unrepentant sinner is on a collision course toward destruction and death. It's to love them. It's to correct them in the right way, as we've taught. How are you guys doing? <laughs> it's a hard truth, right? You're like, I, I came here for good times. 
So let's, let's do a little pick-me-up with some cows. How about how that? My, my mom grew up on a dairy farm in Ohio, and she was kind of seen as the good Christian girl of the family, kind of the, the white sheep, if you will. And uh, they, uh, even in adulthood, when she would mess up, like her family loved, uh, loves to point out, like, hey, Carmen cussed, theoretically, not that she's ever said anything. Uh, <laughs> hi, Mom. Uh, or when she loses her temper, right, or whatever it is, like they loved pointing out, see, you're just like the rest of us. Like you say you're this good Christian, but you're just a sinner just like the rest of us. And she, like in all earnestness, we were talking one day, and she's like, what do I say to them? Because honestly, those things they're pointing out, they're right, they're true. Like I, I do mess up in those areas. What, what do I say? I want to be a good testimony for Jesus. And in just kind of this spirit-led moment, and we were talking, and I said, man, I would tell your family, like you don't know the half of it. Like, what you're seeing is just a tip of the iceberg. You have no idea how, how deep it goes. Most of the stuff is actually going into my heart, and nobody else even sees those sins. Guys, our gospel witness to this world is not being perfect. If that's the case, then we're going to be terrible witnesses. Our gospel witness to the world is I was a sinner who was saved. That I'm a recovering sinner who's been found and forgiven by Jesus Christ. It is the God. And how do we do this? How do we become a people who can just freely say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yep, I messed up there. You're right. Because aren't we racked by anxiety and insecurity? How can we stand on that secure ground? There's one way, and that is the gospel of Jesus. I love the way Tim Keller says it. This is the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We weren't just a little off the, the, the path. Like, we have no idea how lost and desperate and hopeless we truly were on our own. And yet, he says, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Like, that's the good news. So we are his children. And yes, it, those sins are true. And it's actually worse than even we know right now. And yet, God loves us more than we could ever know talked to a guy recently. He says, man, I, I hadn't been in church for years, and I was terrified to come in this morning because I didn't think God would think I was good enough. Like, I didn't think God would accept me. And he had stayed out of the doors for years. I just looked at him, and I hugged him, and I said, if that's the case, we're going to have an empty church. This is a hospital. We don't clean up our act to come to God. We come to him for his cleansing freely given in Jesus. We stand on this secure ground. But notice he says we are accepted in who? In Jesus. Because the gospel is that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus was the only one who ever lived a life that never needed disciplined, never needed corrected. And yet he bore the brunt, the punishment for our path-straying disobedience so that we could now be accepted as God's children. He willingly became the Lamb of God who was abandoned and forsaken so that we could be the stray who was found and brought home covered in the Lamb's blood. Amen? So now we go. It's trophies of his glory and his grace, not as perfect ones but as sheep who had strayed and have been found by the good shepherd. And he wants to forgive us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to help us, correct us onto the right path for our own good, for the good of the body of Christ and for the glory of our God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that this is the safe and good path? Would you pray with me? Father God, we were more lost than we ever knew. 
We know we cannot save ourselves. We can't find the path by ourselves. Father, it's hard to truly believe that you're for us and not against us. That we can feel like the story of the man coming in here. That man, we just, we've, we've gone way too past the point of no return. That we could not be forgiven of that. Could not be cleansed of this. Father, would we silence the lies of the deceiver and that know that in Christ Jesus there is now no condemnation. We stand securely on the ground, the blood-bought ground of Jesus Christ. And in that place, standing on that firm foundation, we can freely admit the areas that we still need to grow in, that we still need to change, and that actually can be a testimony and a blessing to the other people around us struggling in those same areas. So as you're secure now and forever, children, would you teach us what it looks like to receive, to welcome, to ask for that correction, and then to be able to approach others gently and humbly in love. Your spirit is going to poke in on different places and different people in this room today. We're going to trust the spirit to do the convicting. It's God that we read earlier that does the, the changing of the hearts. So Lord, just would you move through the teaching of your word this morning wherever it needs to be received and give them the bravery to walk in that truth and find the freedom of what it means to be a child of God bought by the blood of the lamb whose sins took away the sin of the world. It's on that foundation, the firm foundation of the name of Jesus that all God's people said. Amen. Amen.